Well, in a way, it was, uh, you know, Sophia's idea, the publisher, I, I always call it Delivered by Grace, but uh, they were playing with this idea of people's image of the wolf of Wall Street. Mm. And here's this Wall Street guy who spends his evenings out on the streets of New York trying to bring people back uh, to the church, you know, and, you know, so the missionary of Wall Street kind of idea. Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. Stephen Alt is the Chief Investment Officer with one of the largest money managers on Wall Street who has another mission far from the spotlight of high finance, TV interviews and the highs and lows of the markets. On the streets of New York City, he and a group touch the hearts and souls of people and bring many back, says Steve, to their faith in God. Steve has written about this in his Missionary of Wall Street book, published by Sophia Institute Press. And now Steve is out with a new book, Pilgrimage to the Museum, Man's Search for God Through Art and Time. And it's also published by Sophia Institute Press. Stephen Auth is my guest coming up. Art is a key way that God communicates with man. Art is beauty. God is perfect beauty. And artists who have the image of God in their soul, like all of us, are seeking that beauty. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. We'll have our interview coming up in a wee moment with Stephen Auth, author of The Pilgrimage to the Museum. He'll talk about his near-death experience some 20 years ago that touched his life profoundly and adds meaning to what he does today on Wall Street and on Main Street in his own words. Before that, it's time for this week's segment of Future Shock 2.0 with workforce trends expert... Ira Wolf. Ira Wolf, welcome back to Future Shock 2.0. I'm hearing and reading about burnout. Many employees are totally miserable. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, absolutely, John. It's great to be back. And it, it's tragic. I mean, it, it really is another epidemic. I know we just came out of the pandemic, and, and uh, it's another burnout is another epidemic. Uh, the Gallup Group, which most people would recognize, uh, they just released their State of the Workplace uh, report to uh, 2022, and it's pretty devastating. Uh, what they found was that, well, 19%, as, as you indicated, 19% of the workforce is miserable, miserable, and it's pretty tragic. So they asked a number of questions. One of them I found really amazing. How many people were stressed yesterday? And, and there were thousands and thousands of people in this survey. How many people were stressed yesterday? And the number was that 49% uh, indicated that they were not thriving and not engaged uh, and also stressed to a very high level. So that only 21% of all the employees that they, that they surveyed were engaged. There were 33% that said they were thriving. Uh, now, that's actually the sad thing about that. That's a high number. It's, it's actually a percent higher than it had been. Here's the problem. 40% of the people that were surveyed said that they were worried a lot yesterday. 44% said they were highly stressed. 
Um, 21% says they're stressed every day, and 23% said they're sad. Uh, there was 24% that also said um, that they were not only angry, but they weren't thriving and not engaged. The people who were stressed, almost half of them are not thriving or not engaged. And when you look at the numbers of why people leave, uh, why do we have this great resignation, the great reshuffle, the great reevaluation, people are mentally, emotionally. In, in bad shape. And, you know, the events of today and, and that of every day uh, isn't helping. Uh, what's interesting is uh, that in 2020, there was a higher level of engagement. There was a higher level because companies tend to, although there was a whole group of people that, that were sort of lost with the pandemic and trying to figure things out, they felt that the, their organizations, their businesses, their, their leaders reached out to them. They felt there was a, a better sense of belonging uh, during the pandemic. And now that we've gone back to work. Uh, and and more and many organizations, especially you know Wall Street, seems to be going against a trend in banking and financing. Is now everybody has to come back to work. Uh, it's it's I, I don't know where they're getting their data from, uh, no. or, or whether this is personal feelings that that we need people back to work. But it, it's not it's not a good move because ultimately uh, there was a group found that the, for people that were coming back to work that there was a higher level of stress. Uh, for those people. And for the people who never left work, this was interesting. The people who never left work, there was a 50% increase in the level of stress they had when other workers came back to the workplace. Uh, again, it, it's really a catch-22. It's, it's just sort of you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Uh, but the reality is, is people need to take a fresh look. It, it's not where people work, but how people work. And, and so many people are focused on the location uh, and they're ignoring the signs of, you know, of how people are going to work in the future. More from Ira Wolf next week. Ira is a top five global thought leader, public speaker, and he's host of the popular Geek Skeezers and Googleization podcast. I also want to remind listeners to catch another great podcast. Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein of Odeon Capital Group. It's about all things money and markets. In the latest episode, episode 24, the conversation looks at the latest across the globe from banking and the economy to the brutal war in Ukraine and what history may be telling us. Odeon Capital Conversations is up there on Apple and on all the good platforms. It's a top-rated Apple podcast in America and Europe, and it is hosted by yours truly. Dick Beauvais is the Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group, and Matt Van Alstein is Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. My guest is Stephen Ault, a very busy executive on Wall Street, who you will have seen and heard on Fox, CNBC, Bloomberg, and many other outlets. And he is an executive passionate about his Catholic faith. Steve got a lot of attention for his book, The Missionary of Wall Street, and now he is out with a new book, The Pilgrimage to the Museum, Man's Search for God, Through Art and Time, published by Sophia Institute Press. I'm your host, John 
Aidan Byrne. Stephen, you're very welcome to my show. I'm really delighted to have this opportunity to talk to you, a man of deep faith and someone who has written this new tome. And I want to hear all the details, pilgrimage to the museum. And along with that, of course, you've had this long distinguished career on Wall Street. So I'm sure there are already listeners and viewers, because we're going to post this on YouTube at some point, wondering how do both of those go together? And maybe some of them are rolling their eyes. You know, they think of Wall Street. Oh, gosh, greed is good. Yeah, I, I always think, how do they um, not go together? <laughs> uh, you know, 40 years on Wall Street, running billions of dollars uh, through all the ups and downs. I don't know how I would have done it without a deep faith. And I know there's folks that are successful short, short periods of time ripping people's eyeballs out of their skulls. Uh, that's not the approach, you know, a, a Christian would take, um, frankly. And there are a lot of folks on Wall Street who actually have deep faith, John. You'd be surprised. Some of them are very good friends of mine. And, um, you know, a lot of the great Christian virtues work really well on Wall Street if you're thinking about long term integrity, self-mastery, ability to control your emotions, uh, prudence, uh, you know, servant leadership. Some of these virtues could probably make a book of it. In fact, it's on my list to write up. Yeah, it's been a wonderful career on Wall Street for me, but I don't know how I would have done it without my faith. So you say there are a lot of good people on Wall Street. I don't doubt that. I'm familiar and know a lot of them myself. They may not be people of faith. Some are people of faith, but are very charitable. Some of them go about their lives in a humble way and help others. And uh, it's kind of an interesting mixture, not something that comes up in conversation much. Again, people think of Wall Street as this place of greed is good, as we said, just at the yeah. start. Sometimes know. it works in the short term, but it never works in the long term. How do you apply your faith on Wall Street? Well, uh, as a leader, uh, you know, I'm Officer of Federated Hermes uh, Equity Division. So it's a pretty, you know, a lot of very smart people working with me. And, uh, you know, as a leader, Christian virtues, I mean, I, obviously we're a non denominational firm. I mean, uh, you know, we diversity is what actually makes a good investment process, among other things. But certainly a lot of the aspects of servant leadership are very important to me in how I you know, manage uh, the equity division at Federated, um, you know, humility, uh, you know, thinking of yourself as there to make your portfolio manager successful as opposed to have them make you successful changes everything about the dynamic in the workplace. And I think it does lead to greater long-term success. I mean, sometimes short-term failures, but that's what life on Wall Street is like. And that's what the spiritual life is like too, John, as you know, I mean, mm -hmm ups and downs. And uh, the pilgrimage to the museum is like that uh, in some ways. It, it takes you through the, the ups and downs of man's search for God through 5,000 years. And in some ways, it's a microcosm of my own life and maybe many of the readers. And the, the book is, is out this month and uh, has gotten some nice reviews and has gotten uh, blurbs from a lot of distinguished leaders in our community. I noticed that uh, Cardinal Timothy Dolan wrote a nice piece about it. So it's it's off to a good start. Um, 
Before we get into the book, I just, again, just go back to Wall Street, uh, Stephen, because I don't get these opportunities um, all that much to talk to people at a high level on Wall Street like you, a person of faith. Although, again, I do know people on Wall Street who are people of faith, but they're not public figures. You know, you think of all the big bonuses and the, the, the money that's made and so on. That can by itself corrupt an individual. How does that work? How does that play with somebody's faith, their morals, and how they deal with big money? Yeah, I mean, stewardship, right, Johnny? If you you think of yourself uh, in the context of I'm a steward of wealth uh, for my clients, but even the wealth that the Lord sort of grants me, perhaps through success on Wall Street, my wife and I truly view ourselves as the stewards of that, not as the owners of it. And when you think about that, you think, what would a good steward do? And so the projects that we undertake and support, um, and I think there's a lot of folks on Wall Street who view their wealth that way. Um, so again, I, I, I think Christian, my Christian values, if you will, I mean, I'm not, I wish I was a saint, I'm not, uh, but they've certainly helped me deal with issues like that and not be so attached to money that I'm willing to sacrifice my morals or run over people or cheat people to make more of it. Um, I probably could have made a lot more money, perhaps in the short term, but I don't know that I would have built the spiritual reservoir of wealth that I'm going to need to get into heaven. So, And of course, we know a lot of people on Wall Street donate so much money to charitable causes and institutions. It must be stated here. Yeah, I mean... Wall Street community in general usually has been pretty generous uh, with folks. I'm not here to defend the entire Wall Street community. There's plenty of folks that kind of meet. In fact, my first book, Missionary Wall Street, John. Yeah, we just spoke about that before we went on air, and you got my attention. Tell us about it. Well, in a way, it was, uh, you know, Sophia's idea, the publisher, I I was called Delivered by Grace, but uh, they were playing with this idea of people's image of the wolf of Wall Street. And here's this Wall Street guy who spends his evenings out on the streets of New York trying to bring people back uh, to the church, you know, and, you know, so the missionary of Wall Street kind of idea. But um, I've had many Wall Streeters help me on that mission. Uh, We still are doing it to this day. We do it four times a year out on the streets. We've spoken over three million people. Three million people? Wow. Yeah. Good flow. <laughs> There's a lot, a large volume of people coming through the streets of New York in over 12 years. Uh, if you have 150 missionaries out there, uh, you can rack up those kinds of numbers. Now, you know, spoken to is one thing, spoken with is another. So, actual meaningful conversations, probably a couple hundred thousand. And of those, we think we brought back, I and mean, we don't have a ticker, but Roughly fifteen to 20,000 folks that we brought back uh, to the church after many, many years away um, with some really positive results. You know, when, when folks come out of that church, they've been to confession for the first time in a long time. They feel the Lord's love. Um, you know, they're kind of floating. Someone wanted to ask me, Steve, like, you're a numbers guy. How can you think this can make any sense? Um you know, they did the math on, you know, I don't know, 20,000 versus 3 million. I think it's something like 0.05% chance 
uh, of having success on any individual that you introduce yourself to, which is extremely low margin. My answer yeah. is I make it up on volume. Because if you can bring one back, one person back, just one, um, maybe to a spiritual life that increases their odds of getting to heaven. I mean, one times eternity is equal to eternity. And you know, I think we're all called to try to get to heaven and to bring as many people with us as we can. But, you know, missionary on Wall Street, that, that's a very radical uh, evangelization. It's full of wonderful stories. Uh, if you haven't read it, I'd recommend it. I, it got, you know, got and who really is good. the missionary? Is that does that is that singling out you or somebody else, or is it just the title? Well, it's the title, but it's probably singling out me as the leader of this. Mm. Uh, again, my title is delivered by grace because uh, the book is about. Um, in some ways, it's a story about people that are delivered by the grace of God. But in the end of the book, you finally get it that the people that are truly delivered by grace end up being the missionaries. Like the transformative power of working with God on a project, um, I think people underestimate that. Uh, it itself transforms your own soul to a certain extent. So, yeah, I think pre- Missionary of Wall Street's a little bit presumptive, frankly. Um, I struggled with that title when it was proposed, but it did accomplish the objective of, of making the book, I think, um, something interesting for people. It's sort of the way we started this interview, John, like how possibly a guy from Wall Street could be a missionary. Were these just random individuals who were coming through the subways, were they people of faith already who had lost the faith? Were they Catholic, non-Catholic? Because you are, you're a Catholic. So when you're talking about bringing them back to the faith, I presume bring them back to the Catholic faith? Yeah, well, our broader objective is to bring people closer to God. Um, and it's we do the mission out on street corners in Soho, which is one of the most affluent neighborhoods in New York City, around the original St. Patrick's Cathedral called the St. Patrick's Old Cathedral, though more recently we've begun doing it at St. Patrick's Cathedral as well. But uh, yeah, they're out on the street corner, um, passers-by on their way to dinner. Uh, and we we start our conversation with a very simple question, are you Catholic? And um, you get all sorts of reactions to that question. Some people simply ignore you. Some people laugh at you. Some people say, I was Catholic. Some people say, I'm sort of Catholic. And some people say, no, I'm not Catholic. Why are you interested? I'm Jewish or I'm Protestant or I'm Muslim. And virtually all of the conversations where people give us that kind of an answer, like I am Catholic, I'm Muslim, all of those end up being a pretty meaningful dialogue. And many of those folks uh, end up in some way or another, at least visiting the church. Uh, I've been amazed at, I mean, this year in particular, how many non-Catholics were interested in having a conversation with us. Their images of Catholics are kind of judgmental, difficult people to deal with, kind of lots of rules and regulations. And um, when they're approached with someone with love and joy in their heart, they're kind of taken aback and they're kind of intrigued. Yeah. And the conversation ends up going a lot better than they or the missionary would have 
imagined. I, it, it reminds me of what, um, it's not our full mission, but Sisters of Life when they're on the streets of New yeah. York City. They uh, draw people to them. They're they draw people. I call them the atomic weapons. We, we, uh, <laughs> they join us. Uh, they're among the missionaries that we've used, John. And uh, they are literally atomic weapons. They're out there in their habits. And I'll tell you, former Catholics even, somehow or other, they can snub a missionary, a lay missionary, but boy, they can't snub a nun. Yeah. <laughs> They're so joyful. They are really wonderful. Done, done so much uh, for New York life. City. The humility there is extraordinary. Yeah. And, the, and the level of intelligence may be added as well yeah. um, and wisdom. But it's got to be very difficult in New York City. I mean, this is um, New York City politically for sure is liberal. However, we describe that's certainly socially liberal, right? Yeah. On the extreme side, I mean, we don't want to spend the you know show talking about abortion, but as extreme abortion laws, and that sort of exemplifies that. So hard nuts, I should say, to crack maybe in New York City. Yeah, uh, you could take that view. I, you know, it's like the two shoe salesmen that go to Africa, and one comes back and says, "Forget about it. Uh, no one here has any shoes." The other one says, "This is unbelievable. No one here has any shoes." You know, <laughs> so. In New York, you have all these folks uh, pursuing a secular lifestyle that have fallen away from God and have been convinced by the culture this is going to make them happy. And frankly, John, in my experience from thousands of conversations with folks, uh, many of them are not, actually. And when they're approached by someone, a perfect stranger, there's something um, wonderful about it. I mean, it, it's someone who's joyful, loving, confident, and humble. These are all disarming traits of Christians. It's, it's the same traits that helped the Christians conquer the Roman Empire, really, right? And um, when they're approached that way, people embrace it, actually. I, I was surprised. We, we did the mission um, just for Holy Week this year. Uh, and it was their first time out on the streets, really, in three years because of COVID. And I was, frankly, a little bit concerned. We'd lost a number of missionaries, one who had died, a few had moved away, et cetera. And, and so we're a little light-handed. I was a little bit nervous about how this was going to go. And um, what's impressive is that typically through the course of a week or two, you know, doing this, you'll always get a few people when they leave, you know, like, because they're feeling so good about themselves suddenly, unexpectedly. I got more hugs this week in the midst of all this chaos you're, you're referring to and all the secular, I got more hugs I've ever gotten on a mission in New York City. So there's something here and we shouldn't underestimate the power of love and joy yeah. and Christ's message. I mean, um, it's not that surprising when you think about it. I know we've been trained to believe it should be surprising, but it's really not. So you're dealing with the culture. Quickly go back to Wall Street. My favorite biblical quotes, and correct me if I've gotten them a little bit wrong, or I'm paraphrasing, I guess. It, the two, the love of money is the root of all evil, and happy is the poor of spirits because theirs would be the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, you could be the wealthiest man on the planet, but you could get into the place above very quickly if your heart is in set in the right. There's nothing wrong with having 
accumulated wealth. It's how, how you deal with it and your attitude. You use it. How you yeah. use it. You use it for yourself or you're using it for the world. And our wealth these days, by the way, John, it's not just our money, but it's our time. I mean, you you sort of were asking me about this off camera. Like, how does a guy from Wall Street have the time to write a book, particularly one as extensive as something like this last book I just wrote, Pilgrimage to Museum? And, you know, we all have time. They were given by God. It's one of the great talents. And in today's world, frankly, it's worth more than money. And it's a question how we use it, you know. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing. But not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart. And it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Stephen Ott, who is out with his latest book, The Pilgrimage to the Museum, Man's Search for God Through Art and Time, published by Sophia Institute Press. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Tell us a, a, a bit about this book. It's great. It covers a lot of time, a huge historical sweep of the art world, uh, I presume up to the present. And the point is made in the biographical details and notes that in today's world, God is not typically associated with art. But it was in medieval times and in different generations. That has all changed Explain all that to us, why we went from this art with God as the central focus, and now we have, what, the new art world, which has sort of gotten away from that, although there is a hint that it's coming back. Right. So um, this is our our other evangelical project in New York. My wife and I, on Friday nights, do these tours in the museum, and they're designed to bring people closer to God through art. And it's the basis of the book um, in a lighter way that's maybe not as radical and scary as, as meeting people, on, strangers on the streets, right? The idea here is, and I'm, I'm kind of in some ways an art historian's worst nightmare. I, I, I was trained cla- in classical art history at Princeton. I don't have a degree in art history. I, my degree is in history and economics, but um, you know, it took a lot of coursework in that field and fancy myself a classically trained art historian in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, But once I had this reconversion experience 20 years ago, I was always a Catholic, but kind of found my faith in a much deeper way in a kind of dramatic moment, if you will. But I began to see everything differently. And it occurred to me that art is a key way that God communicates with man. Art is beauty. God is perfect beauty. And artists who have the image of God in their soul, like all of us, are seeking that beauty. So I firmly believe, and you could say, well, I don't, but just work with me for a moment. I believe all artists, whether they're Catholic or atheists, and all of them appear in pilgrimage to the museum, I believe all of them are seeking their creator through their art. And if you approach the art with that point of view and just work with me on that, the book opens up for people 
what's really going on. The reason we wrote the book was that we found in the tours, whereas, you know, the secular world, you know, and not to be critical, but, you know, it's just so politically problematic to mention God. Mm. Um, You know, the secular world tries to describe art in a kind of clinical archaeological fashion and often very accurately in some sense. But of course, by leaving the central topic out of the painting and the description, we're left with a kind of sanitized, I don't want to say shallow, because that's not really fair, but a kind of emptiness that I think I would challenge most of your listeners who have been in a museum, that there's something attractive about the museum. There's this beauty around there. But then they read the descriptions or they take the audio tour, or I see them on the official tours. And after about 15 minutes, your eyes start to glaze over. Because <laughs> there's only so much you can take with brush strokes and oriental periods and this and that. And what you're actually missing is the, the search for God in the painting. I'll, I'll give you one example of this because it was coming to my mind visually as you were asking about the struggle for, between money and God. An artist that really struggled with this was Rembrandt, who I'm sure everyone's aware of, one of the greatest painters um, in the history of mankind. He painted in the 1600s in the Dutch Republic of Amsterdam, um, which was a uh, you know kind of Protestant culture, but very much the art world at that point had been taken over by the wealthy patrons, um, the wealthy merchants of Amsterdam, and they're all building these wonderful mansions, and they're kind of looking for artists to paint nice paintings, sort of as interior decoration projects. Rembrandt was a man of um, great spiritual depth, also had his own struggles, and in particular struggling with, you know, various affairs he was having, et cetera, which I won't go to at this moment. But so Rembrandt, um, one of his problems was he was frequently asked by people to paint like an interior decoration project, and he never quite gave people what they wanted. The Met has a painting um, of Rembrandt, has several, but one uh, that's a centerpiece in a pilgrimage is called uh, Aristotle with the Bust of Home. And I always introduce it to people as this was Rembrandt's greatest self-portrait. And you know, people snicker and I go like, well, obviously the guy doesn't know what he's talking about. This is not a self-portrait. I mean, there's 74 self-portraits of Rembrandt and this is not his face. What is going on here? And I go, this is a portrait of Rembrandt's soul. So let me take you through this, right? So the painting has Aristotle. He was asked by this wealthy merchant, actually a guy from Naples, um, side story, but asked to paint a painting of a Greek philosopher. And so he gives the guy a Greek philosopher, except what he paints is a reference to what they're all going through, right? The Greek philosopher Aristotle has got his right hand on the bust of Homer. stands for the classical virtues. We were talking about some of them earlier, prudence, self-mastery, things that were adopted in Christianity. Um, This guy's right hand there. His left hand is fingering a gold chain that's hanging around his neck with a medallion, which is the third portrait in the painting of Aristotle's most famous pupil, Alexander the Great. Alexander has given him this gold chain 
which is the ill-begotten wealth of the world. And the patron is about to give Rembrandt a gold chain, if you will, for painting a nice interior decorating project. And Rembrandt wants to paint God. So Rembrandt paints this painting. And if you look at his face, this is incredible. It's a window into the soul of Rembrandt himself as he's struggling. Do I take the path of virtue or do I take the gold chain? And you look at this and you see on his face, painted simply with oil on canvas, you can't figure out what he's going to do. He's literally thinking what to do. And then you go look at the right hand on the bus of Homer and you realize, wait a second, it's not firmly grasping the bus of Homer. It's kind of patting the bus of Homer. Well, how about the left hand? Well, it's not grabbing the chain. It's fingering it. And then you notice something else that's really interesting, John. He's painted the left hand larger than the right hand. Now, Rembrandt was one of the most skilled painters in the world. Okay? This is not an accident. Right. So he's telling us the draw, the lure of the gold. Wow. Be the downfall, right? And you're left with this image, and then you're standing in front of it, or in the book where you're sort of standing in front of it, and you're saying to yourself, that's me up there. Mm. Am I going to grab the gold chain or I'm going to grab the bust of virtue? And John, this is a lifelong commitment and a daily struggle, not just for guys on Wall Street, but for anybody living in the world today. It's a, a lifelong commitment to be a Christian. It's a daily struggle to fulfill that mission. One image from the pilgrimage, but it's that's that's where we go. Yeah, and there are many striking images in your book: pilgrimage to the museum, man's search for God through art and time. I'm just looking at it. A lot of the illustrations are from displays at New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. Right, that's where a lot of the illustrations and uh, what you write about is in this book. Yeah, well, uh, for a couple of reasons. One is. Um, we live in New York, so we, we get to New York a lot um, from you know Jersey and other places, but we have an apartment there. But uh, we spend time in that museum, and we've spent you know, 30, 40 years there. And so for us, we really understand those paintings really well, and it was like natural us to use that. The other thing is that the Metropolitan Museum is an encyclopedic collection. It's probably the greatest encyclopedic collection in all the great art museums. So the Louvre and the British Museum come close. But if you ever wanted to attempt to tell the story of man's search for God through art from the very beginnings of Western art, which is ancient Egypt, and take it right through the moderns, right through Picasso and Pollock and Salvador Dali and Hopper, um, you, you could probably only do it in a couple of different art museums. So it's not about the Metropolitan Museum. It's, it's, about, um, it's about art, but we do use a lot of images from the Metropolitan Museum. About 90% of the images are from there. We've only, we use others only where we felt it was really key to the story in some ways. So it's certainly worth 
a visit so if readers pick up your book and read it which they will with great delight then make a visit to the metropolitan museum of art if they haven't already done so you take people as i'm told here in a beautiful note i got on a spiritual time machine from egypt's old kingdom through greece and rome to medieval europe from the age of the renaissance through the ages of exploration and enlightenment and from the rise of atheism in the late 1800s to the seeds of a spiritual rebirth so the rise of atheism in late 19th century tell us about that yeah that's a dark moment uh in the history of the world and certainly in the history of art and um you know there's a moment in art uh, at the very beginning of the Renaissance in 1300, uh, there's a painting at the Metropolitan by Duccio where uh, the artist begins for the first time to take art from this completely spiritual w- world, which it's in, in that kind of abstract vision of the Middle Ages, to an attempt to paint the soul of man, but that with Rembrandt. But Duccio was the one who really started this quest. And then... Um, when you get into the late 1800s and the age of enlightenment, I like to think of it as the late age of endarkenment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, God is dead, declares Frederick Nietzsche, right? Oh. And, um, the artists begin to adopt that idea that God is dead. So that's seeped into the culture. Yeah. And of course, once God is dead, well, the soul is dead. And artists begin to attempt to paint that reality. And um, it starts, I call it the anti-Duccio moment, uh, Edward Manet. Um, a lot of folks who know much about art would know his famous painting, uh, Luncheon on the Grass, which is at the Louvre. But at the Met, they have a similar painting of the same ilk by Manet. Uh, called A Boy in the Costume of Mojo. And most people look at this painting and say, well, what's interesting about this, Steve? I mean, this is just like, you know, a guy, like a matador, it looks like. I mean, this what is, what is so dramatic here? Why did this thing at the time was rejected by the parish art salon? Because it was, you know, it was a scandal. What's going on? I call it the anti-Duccio moment. Um, Manet has asserted basically that there is no soul here and I'm not going to try to paint it. So, in, you know, in contrast, say, to the Duccio or we talked about earlier, the Rembrandt, where you look at the image of the face of Aristotle, really Rembrandt, and you see an, a window into his soul. The Manet, the boy in the painting is painted with a blank face. In fact, Manet has spent far more time painting the play of light against the silk embroidery of the suit and the uh, the cave he's carrying. And it, it, he's he's showing his dexterity with paint, if you will. But from his perspective, there is no soul. And that declaration that art is no longer here to lift us up to God, that we have no soul leads artists into a really dark time. You know, Wren Cathedral becomes, uh, I call it God's tomb, a painting of God's tomb. We could talk about that. Then you get into Van Gogh and, uh, you know, God is, he still thinks there is a God, but it's a very scary God, right? I mean, you can think of some of the Van Gogh paintings, Starry, Starry Night, people know in the, in the 
pilgrimage we have um, that painting, but also we feel with Cyprus where God is this scary force uh, that's out there. And then, of course, Picasso, you know, utter rejection of God. And then, of course, once we reject God in his existence, um, we become very lonely. And you get into the paintings of George Surratt. Um, there's this wonderful painting at the Met called Circus Sideshow. And I, I find it so ironic. There's all these paint uh, musicians um, playing in a, and you'd think, well, these should be happy people. They're playing together in a band. Surratt's more interested actually in showing that he can paint dusk and images through a dusk. It's really technically incredible painting. What it evokes for me is this utter loneliness. These individual band players seem to not be aware of each other's existence even. And no one seems happy. Um, and, you know, brings me back to the streets of New York that we were talking about earlier. But And then you get to Edward Hopper, you know, and I mean, things are like you for the, you know, really long, uh, the loneliness of the cityscape. Um, when we reject God, that's where we head, John, you know, and some artists have begun to find him again. Uh, the book ends with this wonderful um, uh, where I think uh, Dolly kind of gets it right again. So there's hope. I was about to ask you, are there any artists today incorporating the idea of God? Uh, sure, there are. There are religious artists, but I, I, I really like to focus on Salvador Dali because he's a really interesting character. I mean, he was raised by an atheist father. His mother was a devout Catholic, and uh, but he was raised as an atheist and eventually uh, meets a woman and becomes his muse, and she's a devout Catholic. And Dali has this major reconversion experience. Uh, in some ways, not dissimilar to my own, perhaps. Mm. Not to equate the magnitude of it with Dolly, but um, and he starts painting uh, in this modern style surrealism, uh, but with a devout, devout Christian faith. And one of the great images uh, at the Metropolitan, in my mind, um, it's because it's very modern, but it's. It's Christ crucified, uh, which is very unpopular, by the way, uh, crucifixion paintings. But it's it's very unpopular. Unpopular. Generally, crucifixion paintings these days don't sell well at the south of these art auctions. Uh, you know, he's standing there, Christ. He's holding himself to the cross. There's no nail wounds, actually. So he's holding himself to the cross. And he's actually resurrecting at the same time. So it's an illusion. And this is, I think, what Dolly figures out as a modern artist is that the reason why crucifixion paintings aren't terribly popular, we have a couple of good ones in the pilgrimage from the Middle Ages, because people don't like to focus on the struggle of the cross so much. You know, that's yeah. not the happy image of Christianity. No. He presents it. They, of course, the people in the Middle Ages know the cross is the path to redemption. It's not Jesus's end, but his beginning, right? His conquering of death. But Dolly shows us the conquering of death in the cross. So that Jesus is literally resurrecting in the whole body, not in tortured form. His resurrected body sort of holding onto the cross. So People get it, like this is about the resurrection. 
And what I love about the painting is it also flips over another motif that crosses us up uh, spiritually right from the very beginning. I mean, call it original sin, if you will, but the sin of pride, right? I mean, when we start out in ancient Egypt and all Egyptian art is searching for God, but of course the Egyptians, like most of us, uh, this is pre-revolution revelation theology. They, they think of themselves as gods. I mean, yeah. they want to make themselves gods. And there's this wonderful image from 2300 BC, 5,000 years ago, where we start the pilgrimage of Pernab building a tomb for himself with all the little people bringing him all his favorite things. And he's seated as a God bigger than life, right? So this big people, little people problem keeps coming up through 5,000 years. Uh, it's a recurring theme of how we all lose track of God when we try to make ourselves God. What I love about the Dolly painting is Dolly gets it right. He's put into the painting the image, not really of himself, but in a way as a proxy for himself, his wife, Gala. And she's on her knees smaller than Jesus, who's resurrecting. And so you are God, I am not. You kind of get it straight. And it's the conquest of love over hate. He's reminding us then at the end of the day, whether you're on the streets of New York doing a mission or on a pilgrimage to a museum, love conquers, conquers all, you know, love, love conquers over hate. And I, I think it's a confident confidence that we have to have um, when we moan about the current secular culture, which has got all these problems. Sure has. In an age of social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Um, I'm running out of apps, but there's multiple ones. Everybody is a friend. Everybody's connected. And yet there's so much social isolation. It's the greatest irony of all time. Is that reflected in modern art today? Yeah, it is. I mean, you, you see it. Um, there's this deep sadness you get. Um, there's an image uh, painted by Picasso called Blind Man's Meal. And uh, it's a wonderful contrast to an image that appears by a painter who painted um, 400 years ahead of Picasso, El Greco. Uh, and El Greco had an enormous influence on Picasso. I think people actually know that. Because um, El Greco in some ways painted in a kind of similar fashion. He was almost a modern painter before his time, but El Greco, being a mystic, was fervently Catholic. And of course, Picasso being, we don't know too much about Picasso, but would assume he was pretty fervently atheist. And um, he paints the opposite of a painting that El Greco paints many years earlier called The Caring of the Blind Man, which is a wonderful painting about how a blind man manages to see Christ and the people of the world standing around him, the Pharisees, fail to see Christ because they're too engaged, chasing gold chains, if you will. But um, Picasso paints this image called Blind Man's Meal. And again, God is dead. There is no communion. There is no God in the Eucharist. And now it's just a blind man sitting by himself at a table. There's a chalice of wine and a piece of bread in front of him. 
and he's fumbling around with his hands trying to find them. And the rest of the painting is very dark. And there's this sense of the artists that they're kind of struggling with where we are here once we've given up God. Um, and I, you know, I think where we are is in a very difficult place. Uh, you know, God is at the center of everything. When we deny our creator, we almost deny beauty, right? I mean, he is, he is perfect beauty. And I think artists have this particular connection to God because he's given them that talent to communicate beauty, which is him. And uh, when they deny that and they run from it, um, I think their struggle is harder than many of us. I mean, so many of the modern artists, well, I don't know, so many is probably too, word, too strong a term, but some of them do end pretty poorly, you know, with, with their lives. I think of Van Gogh or Pollock, um, how they became kind of lost in this morass, if you will. Steve, doesn't artists who, um, back in their time, who were elevated and they put God at the center of their art pieces and illustrations, don't they, at the end of the day, need patrons to put them in that position? Maybe there are great artists out there who do the same kind of work today, but they've no sponsors, they've no patrons, they've no, they've no corporations behind them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not an expert on the current modern, um, you know, how it works, John, but basically a theme that comes through in pilgrimage. I mean, you know, you're drawing stuff out of me that I don't normally talk about. Uh, my wife says, uh, I, I don't connect enough dots for people when I write, you know? <laughs> well, like, articulate on this and it's really thought provoking. Yeah, I don't like to connect dots. I like to let, let the reader connect the dots. But there are dots and crumbs thrown out there about this point that um, you can almost follow the money to find the art. And there's, you know, wherever the money goes, that tends to, because artists, as you say, they need the patronage to pay for the works. And you follow that from the tomb of Perneb in 2300 BC all the way through the Middle Ages where the art is sponsored by religious figures, uh, clerics, if you will, and then into the wealthy patrons of the Renaissance. And, um, and then, of course, those patrons themselves start to lose God and art goes that way. The, there's a wonderful image in pilgrimage of um, Rembrandt's last painting, which is a painting many people would be familiar with. It's, it hangs at the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg. It's called uh, The Return of the Prodigal Son. And what's interesting about this image, I mean, we learn a lot about Rembrandt and pilgrimage. And we see that he had his own struggles um, in many ways, like all of us do. And the return of the prodigal son, by now, he has no patrons, Rembrandt. The greatest artist of all time, perhaps, some would say. Actually dies a pauper. And he paints pilgrimage. I mean, he paints the return of the prodigal son without a patron. It's really his last statement of himself and his struggle to find God. Um, I bring it up because the patron thing kind of came there. And when you get into the moderns, yeah, I mean, the patrons now are folks with a lot of money. 
that many of them um, aren't necessarily that focused on spirituality and art kind of goes that direction. Very interesting. Um, we could spend a lot of time on that. I can just think of major corporations. I wonder what they sponsor, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Twitters. I don't know, but it would be interesting to get those kind of answers at some point. Um, you've had a distinguished career on Wall Street. You, you're you on business media. We see you on TV and Bloomberg and all of the great outlets. Um, you said earlier you had a, a reconversion 20 years ago. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, well, my heart stopped, John, and um, you know, literally so, stopped. Yeah, well, electrical malfunction. It didn't really stop, but it was certainly. It took a while for the doctors to figure out what was wrong with me. I, I said twenty years ago, and I'm thinking now it's over twenty years now. It's probably about twenty-two years ago. But so I found myself um, flat on my back in an ICU ward for twelve days while they're trying to fix me. And, um, yeah, it could have been my work on Wall Street was during one of the great crises, maybe <laughs> caused me to short circuit. I don't know. But uh, I think it was really a wake up call from God. And I, I got a um, a priest came to see me. And to hear my confession and give me last rites. And I hadn't been a confession at that point in 20 years. But on the other hand, given that it seen at least possible that I would be meeting with St. Peter shortly, I thought it might not be a bad idea. <laughs> and um, that confession, frankly, probably in retrospect, I look back on it and say, um, it wasn't a complete confession, if you will. I think when you've been away from a long time, you almost lose track of what's sinful and what isn't. But it began a new spiritual journey for me. And one of the things that came I came away from that, um, you know, the priest said to me afterwards, he goes, Steve, you know, you're a good guy in all those things, but you're, you're using your talents, your wealth, if you will, for you. And that's not, that's not why God gave them to you. And it led to a commitment at that moment to redirect my life and to use my talents and treasure for his kingdom, not mine. And, um, you know, that led to things like the street mission in New York to the Lumen Institute, which I'm on the board of um, trying to form uh, leaders, uh, Catholic leaders in their faith better to bring it to the workplace, influence one, influence many. It led to the museum tour, that, which led to this wonderful book, uh, Pilgrimage to the Museum. So, yeah, I'm still on that journey, John. Um, I wish I could tell you that I'm a saint and um, that I'm perfect. I'm, I don't know how to judge saints, Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> better leave I that to think, some other authority. You sound very saintly to me, though. <laughs> I, I do think that when I talk around the country on these topics, what what is fascinating to me, and it, it, I tell my wife when I get home, I go, sweetie, I think maybe I'm sort of understanding why I'm getting dragged into this stuff. I, I think it's because I work on Wall Street. I think it's because um, a kind of a guy deep in the thick of the of the arena, if you will. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not perfect, but you know, people can relate to me. I, I I think in a way, pilgrimage is like that too. I mean, it's if you're an art historian, I, I know you'll enjoy it, but you'll it's not it's not for people that are like 
art historians or professional academics. It, it has none of that lingo. Yeah. It's not accessible for the lay reader. Very, yeah. It's really, and it is written by someone who's like them struggling to find God. It, you know, it's not the holier than now kind of author. I wish I was one, but I'm not. But it, so I think that's what makes it sort of marvelous in some ways. Well, you said something there that people are drawn to you, it sounds like. You know, you work on Wall Street. Of course, on Wall Street, there's a lot of currents flow through Wall Street. The human emotions, the financial emotions, the economy going up and down, the politics, the interactions with colleagues, the big wealth that's made, the wealth that's lost. I mean, it's a crucible of a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, it is a a world and I, I you know I, I was not being sarcastic when I said to you I don't know that I could have survived 40 years doing this without my faith and it gives me I think the detachment I need the self-mastery um the deep confidence and joy I I have a private theory I, I don't know it probably wouldn't be politically correct to write it up and it's probably not correct anyway but I do think that Catholics make particularly good investors because we tend to be <laughs> optimists and uh, we think there's always good day, you know, and in the end of the day, there usually is. So mm. I have to think about that. It does a lot of depth in that. I think, uh, well, Catholics, the ones who follow us by the rule, if you will, tend to be prudent and careful and um shepherd our wealth and mind it and pass it on to the next generation and don't squander and so on. Yeah. Prudence is a, is an important thing. Prudence also means risk-taking, too, though. Risk-taking, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... But everything in life is a risk. To hide our light under a bushel, right? He wants us to take risks, but just be prudent about it. Be thoughtful about it. Yeah, I mean, every individual, you know, through time has had to take risk. The farmers take yeah. risk. We don't know what the crop is. We don't know if it's going to rain for all season and the whole crop is ruined. You just, just don't yeah. know. Yeah. Pray to God that everything is going to go good and you come out on the other end a little more prosperous. The name of your book, Stephen, is Pilgrimage to the Museum, Man's Search for God Through Art and Time. Uh, give us any of the details where people can buy this. It's Sophia Crisis and Sophia Institute Publications. Where can they read more about it? Website ordering? Right. So Sophia Institute Press, certainly uh, you can go directly in there and pre-order it. It's available available through Amazon, Barnes and Noble. The Met itself is carrying the book uh, at its bookstore, so um, you know the distribution would be okay. But there's multiple sites where you could go and pre-order it right now. Uh, it should be out. The publisher told me that they think it might be coming in a little early. It's, it's scheduled for July 26, but it could be out as soon as a week or ten days, I think. So it's a great summer read. It's a great read all through the year and put it in your Christmas stocking stuff or two later. Stephen Alt, been a pleasure talking to you. Take care and good luck with the new book. Thank you, John. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699, 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. 
That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.